John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also invited, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water and now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at the Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God. Thank you, Amanda. I really appreciate you doing that. Didn't you do a great job? Yeah, thank you, Amanda, for doing that for us. I have never been to the Louvre in France. Have any of you ever been there? Oh, my goodness. Well, you can tell me if this is true. But I, uh, if you go, I, I, I read a couple of weeks ago that if you go to the Louvre in France, have you seen the Mona Lisa? All right. Now, you guys can help me to do this because I've been told that when you look at the Mona Lisa, if you were to look on the opposite side and the other side, do you know what you would see? Yes. Oh, no, it's not the Last Supper, no. Um, if you look uh, on the opposite side, and it may not, may not be exactly there, but on the opposite side, you'll see a portrait called, or a painting called, The Wedding at Cana. The Cana it's a huge, massive picture. Can any of you remember seeing that? It's, it's, it's literally 20 feet by 30 feet wide. Now think about that. 20 feet. Brian, how tall is it to the top of that thing, would you say? 30 feet high? Okay, that's probably how, how wide it is. And then 20 feet would be about to what, would you say, Brian, up to, the, up to the speakers. So you're thinking of a painting that's about as tall as those speakers and about and, and, and 30 feet wide. It's, ma- it's the largest painting in the Louvre, all right? I, I'm, I'm glad we're outdoors, but um, I would have liked to be able to show you this painting on our screen. Because there's a beautiful rendition of it that I found. It's a, be- it's, a, it's, a painting, it's a painting that comes from 1563. It's painted by Paolo Veronese, all right? So it's a really old painting. As I said, it's the largest painting in the whole museum. And compare it to the Mona Lisa, which is about what? 20 inches by 30 inches. I mean, not exactly, but what, the Mona Lisa is about 20 inches by 30 inches, all right? It's about this big, right? It's quite small. Um, and this painting is 20 feet by 30 feet. It's a beautiful painting. Maybe some of you will look at it, um, uh, look it up on your computer, or some of you on your iPhone while I'm talking maybe. But <laughs> in any case, you won't see it too well because it's so massive. There's, there's literally 130 people in this painting. 
130 people in this painting, painted by, uh, as I said, uh, Paolo Veronese. Um, And as you look at it, if you looked at it carefully, there's lots going on in this painting. But in the center of the painting is not the the bride and groom, which would have been the case actually, but actually Jesus himself is at the center of this painting. There are people all around. And in this painting, it seems as though no one is actually talking, you know, 130 people. There's animals in this painting. Uh, There's all kinds of things going on in this painting. And as you begin to look at this painting, you begin to notice something, which I hoped I could show you, but uh, you'll have to take my word for it at this point. As you look at this painting more carefully, you see Jesus in the center, and you realize that nobody is looking out at you, the the viewer of this painting. Nobody's looking your direction except for one person, and it's Jesus. And he sits on the opposite side of the table, and his gaze is fixed directly on you. So you discover as you begin to look at this painting You thought you were looking at at the painting, but you discovered Jesus was looking at you. That's what happens often in this gospel, the gospel of John. We begin to look at it. We look at the story of Jesus at Canaan and Galilee, the turning the water and the wine. We ask our questions. Was it real wine? Why did he do it? Why is this this first? We have all of our questions we come to. Why is this the first sign and all that? But the more we think about it, And the more we look at it, and the deeper we gaze at it, the more we realize that we're not the one looking. We're being looked at. We're we're encountering Jesus in the midst. We begin as observers, but we find ourselves ultimately being observed. If we are, now there are a lot of people who go to the Louvre and just walk past that painting, never, pay, never get the meaning out of the painting, never get what's going on. They're not really paying attention. And a lot of people who come to church, they don't pay attention. Great art depends on a commitment from the person viewing the art as well, right? For those who stand intently and look at this painting, they get something special and unique out of it. The same thing is true when we gather for worship. We can come and just sort of casually listen to the sermon, casually read the Scripture, casually sit down, casually get up, and casually go out and never be changed, never even notice. Or we can take a moment and look carefully at what God has recorded for us there. And in so doing, we will see more clearly what's being done, and ultimately, we ourselves will begin to be changed and encountered by Jesus. We think we are studying Jesus when we study the Gospel of John, but instead we find that Jesus is studying us, calling us to a commitment to a decision. And that's why we've called this series Meeting Jesus. Let's see how this works itself out in today's story. Amanda just read it for you. It seems kind of a strange way to begin your public ministry, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus shows up at a wedding. He and his friends go to a town a few miles away. He and his mother were invited. And while he's there, they run out of wine. And this is a social embarrassment. Nobody really knows that it's going on at first. Mary comes to Jesus. She probably knew the, you know, the mother of the bride. And they're talking, you know, like women do. We're running out of wine. Mary's, what are we going to do? Because this is a major social embarrassment, right? Got everybody there. They're expecting to have a good time. You can't have a good time without wine, right? Right. So anyway, the, uh, uh, they come to Jesus, and, uh, and she comes to Jesus and asks him to do something about it. At first, he seems reluctant. Woman, what am I going to do with you? That's <laughs> basically what he says. What's that, what difference does that make to me? But then he turns the water into wine, better wine than even was there before, and the feast is wonderful. This is a strange way to begin a ministry. It's not like what we see in Matthew and Mark and Luke. For example, in Luke and Matthew, we see Jesus beginning his ministry with a public statement. You know, the year of, 
this is the acceptable year of the Lord. I've come to set the captives free, he says in Luke. In Matthew, he says, uh, he sits down on the hillside. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We have these public pronouncements in Matthew and in Luke. And in Mark, we see a dramatic display of miracles as Jesus moves on to the scene, repent and believe the gospel, and then he begins to heal people and do things. And so many people come by that he's from morning till night. That's Jesus' first day of ministry. But in John, we have a very different beginning. Last week you saw him. He got baptized, and he called five guys to begin to follow him. And they begin to, the next thing we see in John chapter 1, on the third day, there was a wedding, and Jesus went to it. Jesus begins his ministry not by a public pronouncement, not by massive healings that really help people, but by solving a simple social disgrace, a simple social embarrassment. And it appears, if you read this story carefully, that nobody knows about this miracle except for a few. Remember, the master of the ceremonies, he doesn't know about it. He says, he calls the bridegroom and says, man, you've got some great wine. Why did you bring the good wine last? The bridegroom, he's clueless like most bridegrooms are, right? You know, uh, he didn't know. No one told him. The master of ceremonies didn't know. The only ones that knew were Jesus, his four or five friends, his disciples, because they told the story later. Mary would have known, and also the servants, the people that are there just to do the job. Those are the only people that know what's going on. Everybody gets the benefit, but nobody really knows who caused it. You see, this is a strange way to start the story of Jesus. Why does Je- we need to ask the question, why does Jesus choose this platform for his first display of miraculous power? Why? I mean, Jesus is the greatest, started the greatest movement in the history of the world. He's the most successful revolutionary that ever existed. He didn't do anything by accident, Right? He had a purpose. He had a reason in mind. He had something in mind. And then, why, so why did he choose this as the first display of his miraculous power? And we might ask, too, why does John, who wrote this gospel, include this as the first sign of Jesus' glory? He says, this is the first sign. Do you think he's just trying to count for us? you think he's just sort of saying, oh, yeah, this is the first one? No, we know good and well because we're staring at this picture. John's got a reason. He wants us to notice there's going to be more signs. In fact, the next one, he says, this is the second sign. He does not say this is the third. There's actually seven signs. He lets us figure it out like any good artist. He suggests. He doesn't tell, right? This is the first sign when Jesus displayed uh, his glory. Why does John include it? So let's consider this as we examine the story. But be careful because as we look at us, at it, we'll find it looking back at us. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, that this is called the first sign of Jesus' glory. Let's think about that for a moment as we study, uh, study this picture. Verse 11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. It's interesting that John calls the miracles signs. The other gospel writers don't. They call them, what we, would, they call it, we call it miracles. We translate it miracles, but the actual word is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. But the meaning of the word is really mighty deeds, mighty deeds. The first of the mighty deeds Jesus did. John doesn't call it a mighty deed. He calls it a sign. Well, there's a difference there. If you call something a mighty deed, it calls attention to the deed itself, how mighty it was. But if you call something a sign, he's not stressing the deed itself, but the meaning behind the deed, right? The thing that it's pointing to, what's the purpose of a sign? is to say, 
you know, this is the way to go to get here. You see, the sign itself points to something. Um, so what, there, uh, so uh, what does it point to? Well, we see that it points to his glory. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Verse 11. So the purpose of the sign was to show us Jesus' glory. Well, how do we see Jesus' glory in a simple little miracle to solve a simple social embarrassment that helps a few people? How does that happen? We need to ask that question, and I think we'll begin to discover what's going on in this story. How does Jesus reveal his glory? And um, so let's, let's begin to ask this question. Three pictures of Jesus come here as he answered the question, how does Jesus reveal his glory in this sign? That's the question, okay? Having said that, now let's consider the three ways that Jesus reveals his glory. You can jot this down on your notes in the back of your, in your, in your uh, program there. And, of course, we have the text printed for you, too. First of all, Jesus reveals his glory as the ultimate Lord of the feast. I hope you'll take some time to think through all this. I'm a little nervous as I do this because I've, you know, I've, talked, I've thought about this story. In fact, I have never, ever in 30 years of preaching never preached on this story. It always seems sort of strange to me. We're going through the gospel. We need to think about it. It was very meaningful to me as I thought about this. The first thing that Jesus does in this story is he reveals himself as the ultimate Lord of the feast. Verse 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And it says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Now, let's bring the good stuff out first. Then when people are a little buzzed, you know, bring the worst stuff. They won't know the difference. That's what he's saying. But you've kept the good wine until now. Who is the master of the feast at a wedding ceremony? He's the master of the feast or the steward of the feast. He's often a hired person. I think of him kind of like as we hire a DJ at weddings today. The DJ comes in and but yeah, we want music, but a really good DJ was, does what? Makes for a good party. Knows how to involve people. Makes it fun. Starts with the old songs first so the old people dance first. You know, save the rock and roll heavy-duty stuff for a little bit later, right? When he, he knows how to work a crowd. He's there to make the party fun. The master of the feast was kind of that kind of guy. He didn't provide the wine. You know, that was the bridegroom's responsibility to do that. Um, and uh, normally that would be provided by, um, by getting donations from friends and family because the bridegroom wouldn't have enough money to provide all the wine, you know, so he brings that. But he's responsible to dispense the wine, to, to make the party great. He's the master of the feast. He's the master of the feast. He's the guy you hire to keep the party going, to, to make the party fun. And in this case, what's going to happen to this party? It's going to fall flat. People are going to go to the beverage bar and, sorry, we're out. You know, he doesn't, he, the master of the ceremonies doesn't know this is going on, uh, but this is the reality. This is what's going The guests are going to be disappointed. The bridegroom's going to be disgraced, and the master of the feast is going to have nothing to be able to do about it. He's going to be helpless. What does Jesus do? Jesus provides what is necessary for the success of the party. He provides what is needed to make this party great. And so he shows himself to be the true Master of the feast. Jesus shows his glory by demonstrating himself as the true Lord of the feast. Why does he do this in his first miracle? Why does he make 150 gallons of wine? That's about how much? 150 gallons of wine to save a party. 
Because he is the Lord of the feast. It's as if Jesus is saying, remember, this is a sign. It's, the important thing is not the miracle, but what it means. It's as if Jesus is saying, I have come to bring festival joy. Party on. You see? It's as if Jesus is saying, you know, there's this party going on. I'm coming to help it out. But in myself, the sign is pointing to me. I am the source of true joy. I am the source of everything that you maybe think alcohol will provide for you, all this stuff. There's so much more joy. Let me show you how to have a real party. This is the good stuff, right? It's as if Jesus is saying, I want to make your life great. I want to make this party great. See, what we need to realize in this part of the story is that Jesus does not come to diminish our lives. This is what they, this is what we think, like you guys are in high school, you know, it's like your friends at school. It's like, hey, real fun is found on Friday night doing this sort of thing. You see, going to church, why? That's boring. Why? Jesus is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You might reject me. You might not want to follow me, But make sure you know what you're rejecting. I come to give true life abundant and meaningful, joyful, you see? And not just high schoolers, but grown-ups as well. You know, I was here on Friday night, and there was a huge party going on here. You know, I come for the rodeo, and I enjoy praying for it, and uh, make my little, you know, entrance. And and, uh, and it it looked like people having a lot of fun, a lot of fun, you see? And I'm sure a lot of them were, and I hope they did. But there were going to be some people there who were thinking that the fun was going to be found in the girl they might hook up with later that night. Or the fun would be found in making sure they couldn't remember the next day what they had done that night. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. I come to bring you true joy. He is the source of great life. Jesus is the creator of life. Think about the word life in John. John chapter 1. Verse 5, I think. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Um, in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. And don't just put that off someday in the future, like if you suffer here, you'll have a good one later. No, he came to bring us life. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, the thief comes before to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And in John chapter 20 and verse 31, what is actually, we haven't talked about it, but the theme verse of this whole book, he says there are many other, this is the sense of what he says in John chapter 20 and verse 31. There are many other signs which Jesus did, which I could have included in this gospel. But I have chosen these so that you might believe in the Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life through his name. See, Jesus does this miracle in order to show that he is the true source of joy, true source of life. You see, a lot of people think that life is enhanced by one more forgotten weekend, by one more new relationship, by a better income, by a better car. But these are shallow imitations of what Jesus comes to offer. He comes to offer life and joy. In him was life. Jesus is the Lord of the feast. It's as if Jesus is saying that text that we read at the beginning on the front of your program, Isaiah 25. He's as if, as if he is saying, it's happening today. Listen to that text a little bit again. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, 
a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. You see, he will have a, a great power. Verse 9 says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. See, the first thing that we see about Jesus is that Jesus is the true master of the feast, the true source of life. And so we should ask ourselves before we move to the second one, do I ever seek shallow alternatives to life? Do I ever just sort of, you know, look for what quick and easy and or am I willing to find true life in Jesus? And then we might ask ourselves a question, if you are a follower of Jesus, are you a good advertisement for life? Do you live a somber, morose, joyless life? Or do you live a joyful, happy life? Do people see something in you that feels like festal joy? If people were to watch our worship when we come in together to this place, would they see joyful people? Or would they see bored people? If people were to watch us listening to the Scripture right now, would they see eyes intently seeking to learn from the Scripture something that would help them? Or would they see people with eyes glazed over? You see? We should be examples of life. We're the example of what Jesus came to provide for us, you see. Hopefully, Jesus would see joy, or people would see joy in our lives. So, Jesus is the true master of the feast. That's the first thing. Number two, how does Jesus reveal his glory? Secondly, Jesus reveals his glory as the ultimate bridegroom of the wedding. Oh, this is, this is deep. You've got to think with me on this. He is the ultimate bridegroom of the wedding. When the wine, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do what he tells you. This is a strange sequence. Jesus is there at the wedding, and his mother comes to him and says, they don't have any wine. It's a natural thing, you know. She knew who Jesus was and kind of wanted him to fix the problem. Typical mother, right? Can you do something about us? And Jesus responds to her in really what is, a, to us, a pretty abrupt way. Woman. <laughs> and the literal, what is that to me and to you? Like, that's not our business, right? And it sounds like he's being rude, but it, culturally he really wasn't. But it gives us the impression that Jesus' mind was somewhere else. He's startled. He's like, she comes to him, and he's not thinking. He's doing what a lot of people think, a lot of single people think when they're at a wedding. They're thinking, a lot of single people think, Will I ever have a wedding? <laughs> what will my wedding be like? Do I want that at my wedding or not? He's, his mind is somewhere else. You see, there is a great and beautiful mystery that I want. I only have a few minutes to tell you about. It's important to think about. The mystery is this. God doesn't, we know that God wants to relate to us as a king to his subjects. He's the king. We're the servants, right? We know that he wants to relate to us as a shepherd to the sheep. He's the shepherd. We're the sheep. But there is a deep mystery in the scriptural teaching, one which we can only even scratch at our best. And that is that God wants to relate to us not just as a king to his subjects, not just as a shepherd to his sheep, but God wants to relate to us as a bridegroom to his bride with all the intimacy, all the closeness, even all the passion that that implies. I know it's beyond what we can think. It's a little bit like when you first hear the you know, the facts of life as a six-year-old. It's a what? What? <laughs> or 10-year-old. I don't get that. Why would that be 
I don't know, understand. But when you get older, you understand, right? I hope I'm not being inappropriate. When we think about God's relationship with us as a bridegroom to a bride, we can't, we can't fathom that. But that's what the Scripture teaches. Matthew 9 15, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He refers to himself as the bridegroom. In John 3, 29, just the next chapter, John the Baptist says, the one, who has, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now, therefore, my joy is complete. John is saying, I'm, just the, I'm the best man. I'm not the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. And the bride goes to Jesus. That's all the people who follow Jesus. And if we look into Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, the very end of the Bible story, it says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven out of God, uh, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I performed a wedding yesterday, and it never ceases to amaze me. I meet with a couple beforehand, you know, and I, I talk to the, the wife, the, or the, the girl, and, you know, I, I, I you know, I, She's usually pretty or whatever. But when you see her on the day of her wedding, it's like transformation. You're newlywed. You remember, right? Brad, you remember, right? I hope you remember. <laughs> good, good answer. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's like transformation. And that's what this is saying. All of the sense, oh, she's mine. She's coming to me. I'm the minister, and I get to see this all the time. I'm standing there, and I see this bride coming, and she's quite beautiful. But, you know, she's not looking at me. She's not coming to me. She's coming to the guy next to me, right? And she's looking forward to joining up with him, to standing on his side, to saying her vows, and he is. And so we often, often when you're at a wedding, what do you, oh, I want so much. To, this is beautiful, isn't it? Do you think so? Am I boring you? I hope not. At a wedding, the bride's coming in from the and a lot of you guys, you know what you'll do at a wedding? What do you do? You first peek at the bride, but then what do you do? Excuse me? Everyone wants to look at the groom. They want to see what the response is of this guy to that girl, right? They want to know, is he going to lose it? What's he going to think? And what does, what does the guy think? It's like I, he's overcome lots of times. Most of the time when I do weddings, the one who gets emotional, if anybody gets emotional, is the guy. They don't expect it. You hit somebody by surprise, right? Sometimes it's the girl. I have to say sometimes it's even the preacher. <laughs> you know? It's just nothing more beautiful when this happens. In Ephesians chapter 5, those of you who were with us back then, we saw that when the Bible talks about the marriage relationship, it says it's a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Think of the marriage. Plant the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then a few verses later he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Yes, this is a profound mystery. 
the most intimate and fulfilling of all human relationships is merely a picture of that ultimate relationship that we will have with Jesus on the new heaven and the new earth. And it seems as though Jesus is thinking about that day when he gets interrupted by his mother. He's thinking about his own wedding day and its consummation, that ultimate wedding feast. The Bible speaks about the wedding feast at the end of time, that ultimate party of which that little party there in Cana was just a small, almost failed example, you see. And he's thinking, I think, too, about that ultimate embrace when he will take into his arms the church for which he gave his life. Imagine how passionately God must love us, or you might say, must love you. That's how much Jesus cares for you. That's why this is such an important sign. Jesus comes to show, you think this is a party? I'll make this one great. But there's a party coming, and it will be beyond your wildest imagination. So Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. But I think Jesus is not just thinking about the ultimate wedding, but he's also thinking about the third thing that I'm going to share with you. He's also thinking about what it will take for him to provide that wedding feast. He's thinking about that day when he will take his bride, the church, but he's also thinking about what it will cost him. You guys have all had weddings, and you know they're costly, right? They're costly. Jesus is thinking about not just the wedding feast, but also what it will take for him to provide wine for his wedding feast. So Jesus reveals his glory in the third way as the ultimate purification of the wine. The ultimate purification of the wine. We see this when Jesus responds to his mother. His mother or woman, he says, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. That's one reason I like this translation of the Bible. It uses the word hour, which is the Bible word. A lot of versions will say my time, but he doesn't say my time. He says my hour has not yet come. What does Jesus mean when he says, woman, we, we often thought, well, it's too early. I've got a couple weeks before I'm going to do my first. I'm not ready to start my public ministry. That's kind of what we think. That's the shallow look. The deeper look is to say, well, what does John mean when he writes about an hour in this book? It comes up numerous times, and every single time John writes about the hour of Jesus, do you know what he's talking about? His death, his crucifixion. We see it in John chapter 7, verse 30, John chapter 8, verse 20, John chapter 12. You can look through, look at the word hour in your Bible, and you'll see it's always referring to when Jesus is, he's looking at the wedding, he's caught in his thoughts, but he's thinking about the hour the hour when he will give his life to purchase for himself this bride. It is not my time to die yet, is kind of what Jesus is saying. It doesn't make sense unless he's thinking about his own wedding and what it will cost him to provide wine for that feast far ahead. And we know that it's true because later on in verses 6 and following, we see this emphasis on purification pots. Now, where there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, what does that mean? Well, that means for the Jewish people, there was this sense that you're always not, that there was a physical uncleanness you need to wash, but it, was always, it always had a spiritual meaning, didn't it? It meant that we're spiritually unclean before God. 
and we need to be washed. So they were notorious for, they weren't just, you know, uh, germaphobes, you know. There was that benefit, I suppose, but this was the sense that you can't come into any place without cleaning up because you need to be washed. So these purification pots, Jesus has them filled with water, lets us know that people, they, so they would wash their hands, and if they're thinking about the imagery, they would always know that there, the, there, there was a reminder of their sinfulness and their need for God's cleansing. You see, this miracle is an acted-out parable. In order for the feasting to continue, the purification must be accomplished. Now think about that. In order for the feast to continue, the purification needs to be accomplished. So they put the water in, Jesus turns it into wine. At the wedding, it was accomplished by turning water into wine, magnificent wine. But at the hour of Jesus' purification, what was it that brought cleansing? It was not water turned into wine, but blood. Blood. Blood which was given for our purification. When Jesus, and so Jesus on the night before he was killed called his disciples together, and they served what? Bread and what? Wine, which was the typical Jewish Passover feast, which reminded them of the blood of a lamb sacrificed centuries before. And Jesus says, this cup is, the new, is my what? Blood which is shed for you. So Jesus reveals his glory as the ultimate Lord of the feast, as the ultimate bridegroom of the wedding, and as the ultimate purification of the wine. This is why this is the first sign. Now do you see something in this picture? Now do you see Jesus in a fresh way? This is the first of the signs that Jesus did, showing himself to be the ultimate Lord of the feast, the ultimate bridegroom of the wedding, and the ultimate purification of the wine. Well, how do we receive wine in abundance? We Just really quickly and briefly. We do what happens in this story. Number one, we confess our emptiness to Jesus. They have no wine. It's not that just need a little top dog. No, we're gone. We're done. It's done. And you will never get what Jesus offers you unless you're willing to admit your emptiness. You don't need Jesus to add to your righteousness. Oh, Lord, I need a little bit more. I'm not quite there. I got 60% of what I need. No. You've got to admit you're out, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. The first thing to do, if you want the Lord of the feast to be present in your life, confess to him your emptiness. The second thing, ask Jesus for his provision. Ask Jesus for his provision. Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you do something about this problem? You need to come to Jesus and to ask him to solve this problem. And the third thing is, do what Jesus tells us. Don't you love this verse in there? Jesus says to a woman, what, do I, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not come. And his mother walks away like any mother knows. Do whatever he tells you. She knows she's accomplished her mission, right? Do whatever he tells you. And if you want to be, receive Jesus' wine in abundance, do what he tells you. I don't know what that means, it may mean sitting down by yourself even today, or even as we close this time together, saying, Lord Jesus, I confess, I'm out. There's nothing in that pot. I come to you and ask you to fill me in a way with your love and your wine of forgiveness. And then the third thing, oh, I wish I had more time to talk about this. That is this, enjoy Jesus' blessings. 
Enjoy Jesus' blessing. The beautiful thing about this, the master of the ceremonies find this great wine, and he, he calls, he didn't call Jesus, he calls the bridegroom. Let's say, Brian's my bridegroom, and I say, hey, Brian, you brought the great wine out at the end. Well, does Brian have a clue? No, he doesn't even know. He, he's so foolish, he didn't have enough wine, you know. And instead of having shame for being too little prepared, he gets glory for something he didn't do. And that's what Jesus gives you. He gives you his blessing, not because of what you have done, but because of what he offers to you. They had the greatest party ever there. If it wasn't because of what the bridegroom did, it was because of what the ultimate bridegroom provided. See? So if you've received Christ into your life, enjoy his blessings. Look afresh and anew at what Jesus has done for you. See in him See him in all the things of your life. Enjoy Jesus' blessings. Well, now do you understand the wedding at Cana in Galilee? This 30-minute pause in front of that picture, does it give you a new appreciation for this Jesus who is the ultimate Lord of the feast, the ultimate bridegroom of the wedding, the ultimate purification of the wine? He's now looking back at us, and we have to decide how will we respond to him. Let's receive all that he has for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's a mystery in this story that goes way beyond our ability to really understand it. Thank you that Jesus came for us, that he is the ultimate Lord of the feast, that he wants to bring joy and gladness in abundance and overflowing, and that he is the ultimate bridegroom who loves us and cherishes us and as and even prepares us to be able to meet him and that he is the purification, that he gave his life so that we could know him. We respond to you by receiving all that you have for us and by enjoying it to its fullest. In Jesus' name, amen.